Keystone, good morning. We, uh, we record all of our messages, but this may very well be the very first time that we've actually uh, recorded announcements. So if you're listening online, and I know that you all are, I want to say welcome. We're glad that you've chosen to tune in and worship with us this morning. Now, as you drive past Keystone on a Sunday morning or any other time during the week, the, the sign that's along Route 30 doesn't simply say Keystone Church. It says in very tiny print, the meeting place of Keystone Church. And that is a significant distinction. Keystone is a people, not a place. We're a church family, whether we're gathered together or scattered on a Sunday morning. And so it's in times like this that uh, it really does matter what we believe the church is. And on a Sunday morning, um, when we worship, we're worshiping together. uh, And online, we are worshiping together apart. And we're doing this because on Saturday, yesterday, uh, elders decided to suspend all Keystone activities, worship services, youth ministry, Bible studies, rentals, everything. And we've chosen to do that from March 14th to March 28th. That's a 14-day period of time, and that's not a decision that our elders took lightly. A lot of it for biblical reasons. The scriptures admonish us as elders and as a church family not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. And as grateful as we are for the common grace of technology that allows us to gather online, we believe that actual face-to-face community is as important to the health of a local church as it is to the health of your local family. In other words, it's, it's nice that parents can FaceTime their kids when they're away on vacation and circumstances keep them away, but... We think that it'd be tough to love and raise kids solely through a screen. And that's why we'd rather have you here with us. But there are times when the most loving thing that we can do is to encourage people to stay home. And so as you've no doubt seen, the coronavirus has created an unprecedented circumstance. As the disease has spread across the world, it's forced government leaders and church leaders to consider what's really in the best interest of its people. And you've probably heard, these are not easy decisions, and everyone's going to have an opinion about it. Now, at at Keystone, we want the gospel to shape the way that we as a church look at pandemic issues, and we want to do it in a way that's different from how the rest of the world might look at such an epidemic. And so there are kind of maybe two extremes that we want to avoid against. There are some who might overreact and their lives are currently being marked with fear and panic and maybe you're a part of that crew. And in that world, what we believe as Christians is that there's a sovereign God who rules and reigns over the largest galaxies and the tiniest of viruses, or as R.C. Sproul loves to say. There is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. 
And so what that means for us as Christians is that we can trust him and we cannot fear, even when it looks like the world is caving in. And because of the good news of Jesus, God is for us and not against us, and nothing can separate us from his love. And this belief sets us up as believers to fearlessly sacrifice what the world holds tightly in order to love. And so that's one side of overreacting and panic, and Christians might be able to not overreact. But there's another side where there might be a crew who are underreacting. And that might be you this morning, where you're looking at the surroundings and you're thinking, well, I'm not sick. I don't know anybody who's sick. I don't see why we have to go to these great lengths if it's not that big of a deal. And as Christians, we want to think biblically about it, think Christianly about it. And in that way, we believe that every soul matters, that God created us in his image, male and female, each with dignity and worth, regardless of age or location or gender. And so what that means for us as a church is that even if we aren't personally at risk, we want to advocate for those who are. And this belief sets us up to fearlessly sacrifice what we ourselves hold dear in order to extend compassion to others. So after prayerfully monitoring the coronavirus situation and considering how the gospel should shape the way that we view the disease and lead the church, Keystone elders decided to suspend all gatherings and activities for the next two weeks. We do believe that this decision is going to be uh, the wisest course of action for us at this time. In order to minimize the impact of the virus and to protect our church family and community whom God has entrusted to us. So during these next 14 days, there are a handful of ways that the elders uh, have um, seen fit to encourage you to live out your faith, despite the fact that we won't be gathering together uh, on site. And the first would be to fuel your faith on Sunday mornings by listening uh, to new weekly sermons that will be posted on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Number two, you can allow your faith to shape the way that you think and speak and act and Facebook related to the virus. Three, you can stay connected to the church body. And I mean that there are technological ways, whether it's phone calls or texts or online engagement, where we're encouraging the body to stay connected to one another. Fourthly, you can pray for those who've been affected by this virus. And as we'll come to see, this virus is not just going to affect us our health, but perhaps our finances and futures. And uh, as we pray, we can pray with a heart that longs for Christ to one day return and bring about a day without sickness, without suffering, without death. Fifth, reach out to people in need and love your neighbor. And then lastly, um, just general precautions. In order to minimize the impact of the virus, uh, you can wash your hands uh, and stay home if you're sick. And I'd encourage you as well, this is maybe a sixth or seventh, whichever number I'm on. Please pray for the elder team as we monitor the situation. Uh, watch for recommendations from CDC and from local um, government officials and health officials. Uh, the elders are going to meet soon, uh, probably this coming Thursday, to consider uh, what are the next steps that we'll take uh, in order to help shepherd Keystone through this time. And so... With, with that in mind, let me, let me pray for us um, 
turn our face to the one who rules and reigns um, to confess our hearts uh, as well as to intercede for uh, the world. So, Father, we, we worship you this morning because uh, of your bigness and your power. We worship you because you rule over big and small things. None of this is a secret to you, and none of it was a surprise to you. You see all, know all, and we want, Lord, to put our trust in you as our refuge and strength, our very present help in times of trouble. And we confess, Lord, that the anxiety and the fear uh, can well up in our hearts where um, the uncertainty of the future, uh, the potential risk of disease and sickness and of financial loss and um, political chaos causes our hearts to tremble and I pray Lord that uh, you would remind us of your faithfulness to us we thank you for your kindness to the United States for the personnel that you've given as leaders we thank you for the science technology that has advanced care and we thank you for uh, the resources that we have been um, given. And Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, we ask that you would stop the virus, stop its spread. Uh, Lord, we believe that you could in a moment just say done. And so Lord, we, we plead for you to um, end the effects of this virus in the world. We ask for wisdom for our leaders, our politicians, our doctors, teachers and administrators and pastors who are making decisions on how to care for the people that are in their care. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to provide us with all that we need for life and holiness, um, that you would provide for us as families with the uncertainty of business and income, that you would um, continue to pour out your blessing on uh, small business owners that you would care for us as a church, that we might be conduits of grace where we receive so that we might be a blessing to others. And Lord, throughout this, we ask that you would advance the gospel locally and globally, that this would be an opportunity for your church to uh, stand apart, to model what sacrificial love is like, to model what both compassion and fear fearlessness looks like, that others would get a glimpse of your loving, sovereign, wise attributes in the midst of this. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I typically uh, will want to point you to the bulletin so that you can see what kind of announcements are coming up, but frankly, uh, our situation is too fluid for us to make any firm plans uh, in the future. And so what I'd like to do is just really to encourage you to stay up to date uh, by regularly checking in, um, first of all, for Keystone emails. And so if you're not subscribed to our weekly newsletter uh, or you are not getting emails from us, my encouragement for you, send an email to info at keystonechurch.org so that we can add you to our email distribution list. Secondly, um, look for updates on our website. Uh, on our website, we'll be posting uh, updates to uh, changes that might happen throughout the next couple of weeks. Uh, 
And also on our website, you can find our sermon archives or search for additional resources uh, that might continue to uh, stir up your faith. And then lastly, third place you can go, uh, for the smartphone users, I'd encourage you, uh, you can download the Church Center app uh, on Apple uh, Store or App Store or Google Play. And this app will allow you to connect to Keystone by helping you to see events that come up, uh, small groups. You can adjust your contact information in that. And then the, the app also allows you to sign up for future events. You can, once we start gathering again, uh, check in for future services. Uh, you can even give through the phone. Um, we're clearly not going to take an offering this morning, um, but you are able to continue to give. If you've set up arrangements online, you can give at keystonechurch.org uh, slash give and set up uh, arrangements that way, uh, or you can give through the app. And uh, I want to pray for uh, our time here that um, we'd be able to, in the midst of this season, be able to worship God for uh, his provision. And so would you pray one more time with me? Father, we do believe that it's from your hand that all blessings flow. And we want to sit for a moment and reflect on your kindness to us. And Lord, we confess that as we look around, we see chaos and disorder. There's threat and rumors of threats. And we can quickly forget that you have been generous to us. And so, Lord, we want to remember your kindness, that it might lead us to repentance. We want to remember your kindness, that it might bubble over into worship. And Father, we, we want to give this morning, being able to worship you, and trusting that the dollars that are given are going to go to advance the gospel. Lord, I am confident that some of the dollars that are given over the next few weeks will go to helping to eradicate some of the fallout of this virus. And so, Lord, I pray that when those dollars are given, that they'd be given in your name, that you would receive glory, that the church uh, would be pointed to as the one through whom God uh, is working to love and care for his people. And Lord, I pray that you would do this and abundantly more. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say good morning to all of you, whether you are in Lancaster or Strasburg or Coatesville or New Holland, a Gap or anywhere in between or beyond there. Kind of unusual to have only internet audience this time or congregation. We're glad that you've tuned in and uh, want to share with you from the God's word this morning and uh, want us to pray as we dive in, ask God uh, to help us make this very personal for us. And so if you're uh, there with your family, I encourage you to just join hands as we pray together. Uh, Father, speak to us this morning through your word, through your Holy Spirit. Uh, not for somebody else, but speak to us, speak to me, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the final message on our series on apologetics. And uh, we said at the beginning, gave several 
uh, reasons or groups that we are considering when we think about apologetics. Why should we know how to defend the faith? Well, first of all, because most of us at one time or another have our own seasons of doubt. You know, we might be followers of Christ for years, decades, and yet we still struggle. Uh, maybe it's after something goes bad in our lives. Maybe it's because a, a question begins to seat itself in our soul in a way that it never has before. But uh, we need to know how to defend Christian faith because of our own seasons of doubt. And then, of course, if we are parents, uh, for our children's sake, as they're growing and uh, we're teaching them the faith, they're going to... they need to be aware of questions that they're going to be faced with themselves or others will bring to their minds. And so we want to help prepare them well. And of course, if we're struggling with doubt at times, that means that other brothers and sisters right around us in our congregation do as well. And so we want to be prepared to help them as they struggle with doubt. But of course, it's primarily unbelievers that we've always thought about when we think about apologetics or a defense of the faith. Marilyn Adamson was a woman who uh, described herself as a, an atheist. Um, she didn't really have that many questions about God, but there came a time when she began to. And she would talk to people who said they had faith and ask them questions about, why do you, why do you believe that there is a God? What, what leads you to think that? Most of these people were pretty dismissive of her. They said, well, I, I just believe. And well, I, well, how do you know there's a God? Well, I, I just know. And that wasn't enough for Marilyn. And after a while, she said she began to feel like a six-year-old girl who finally realized that Santa Claus isn't real. And so she gave up on this search. But she was interested in figuring out how to live her life and what, uh, what was truth. Uh, she was pretty bright. She began to read different um, uh, philosophers. And she would make, uh, as, uh, she could understand it as well as she could. And then she would try to live her life by it. So she would read Plato and she would read Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and Sartre and, and Hume. And she would take these philosophies and she'd try to build a life around them and live, live them out. And she said it never worked. There, was, there were always things missing or things that just weren't applicable, that didn't make sense to her. Along the way, she met a, a woman who became a friend of hers who was a Christian. And she would ask her some of these questions. And she would give her answers. Um, sometimes she'd say, I, I really don't know how to answer that now. I'll see if I can find an answer for you. One of the things that was striking about her new friend was she seemed to know God like she knew him. She didn't just know about him. She knew him. And she seemed to have a, 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 a relationship with him like she did with other people in her life. She talked with him about the normal everyday stuff of her life. And she recounted things that took place in the period of a month or two. It seemed like God actually answered some of her prayers. And, and as time went on, uh, she got more and more of her questions answered, and eventually her friend pushed her and said, Marilyn, really, what questions do you have yet that aren't answered? Are you resisting 
objecting, pushing back, just because you are afraid of the next step. And eventually Marilyn did become uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. This morning we're talking about loving those with questions because there are unbelievers all around us who think that their worldview better explains things like why all this exists around me, it better explains why life forms behave the way they do, that their worldview better explains what the future does or doesn't hold, or that the, their worldview has a more beautiful vision of what life can be. In other words, people have obstacles to overcome before they're going to welcome the gospel because they think that how they look at life makes more sense than how Christians look at life or how the Bible looks at life. And the fact of the matter is people who are at those places comfortable with their worldviews are lost. Our understanding of their lives, looking at it through the lens of the scripture and the gospel, is that they are lost. That means that ultimately our, our development of an apologetic for our for our lives and our kids' lives and for our brothers' and sisters' lives, it, when it comes to these other people out there who don't know Christ, the goal of that apologetic is to save lives. Save lives. I suspect that in these nine weeks that we've been talking about apologetic that has some answers to the question of does God exist or how can you be sure he exists and um, how can we be sure that there really was a, a man who was raised from the dead? And how can we really be sure that the Bible is trustworthy? That you might be thinking to yourself, this is not my cup of tea. This might be for people who are really smart. This might be for people who are, have a kind of a scientific mind. This, this might be for people who um, will talk with others about things like as dicey as politics and religion, but this is just not for me. And so I, ha I bring to you this morning a question that God wants to lay before you and a question that he wants to lay before me. As followers of Jesus, God wants to ask us, have I or haven't I called you to love people? Have I? Or haven't I called you to love people? Uh, if you don't have a Bible handy, maybe you want to grab one, uh, get your smartphone out, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 10 this morning, starting in verse 25. Again, the title of the message is Loving Those with Questions. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How, how do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Let's just stop there for now. Now, obviously, this man had come to Jesus, and he had, uh, he had an agenda. He, it wasn't a straight-up question. It was a question in which he hoped Jesus would trip himself up. He stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. 
What should I do to inherit eternal life? And what's interesting is Jesus turns the question around on him, as Jesus often does. We see this in Scripture many times. When Jesus has uh, someone ask him a question, instead of answering it like I'm prone to do, he often asked another question. And so the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting that Jesus himself answers a question this way in several other gospel accounts. Matthew chapter 22, someone comes to him and they ask him a different question with which he gives this, for which he gives this answer. And the question is, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? You're a rabbi, you're a teacher of the law. Which commandment do you, do you think is the most important one? And of course, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. If someone to, were to ask you, let's, let's say someone uh, who's not a Christian, somebody outside the faith, were to ask you, what is it about the way you live, Keith, that the, 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 the number one thing about the way you live that sets you apart from other people who aren't followers of Jesus. What would, what would you say? I go to church. Uh, I, 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 worship, um, I worship a God who gave his son to die for us. What would, you say is, what would you say is the thing about how you live that distinguishes you from unbelievers? I would make the argument that it is love. It's interesting, you go to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and he says the fruit of the Spirit is, and he begins with love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, most of us would say, I'm on board with that as long as the people that I'm to love are my family and my friends, ben, uh, people that do things for me, do nice things for me. I'm on board with loving them as long as they fit in a certain category. If you're going to ask me to love people that are strange, um, are mean to me, maybe they're a different culture, different language group, um, Maybe they have a different idea of, of, of when it comes to politics. I'm not so sure about those kind of people. And yet, what's the example that we were given by Jesus? Not only when he was walking around on earth, but when he finally went to the cross and he's hanging there, experiencing, enduring the most excruciating pain you can imagine in his hands, his feet, his head, his back, his face that was beaten by the soldiers. And yet all of that, he's, he's having trouble breathing. All of that he says about the men who've put him there, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't hold them to an account perhaps the way you and I might. This, this would be his enemy. And Jesus taught about this back in his early days of ministry. Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 43. 
You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight both to the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. You see why I say that love is the distinguishing mark of the believer? Regular people who are not believers love the people that love them. Love your enemies. Now that sets us up to, to continue this account in Luke. Now we're at verse 29 of Luke 10. The man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here's where the rubber meets the road. Jesus, if you could narrow that down, you, you, you narrow the, down the slice of people that I have to love, qualify who really is my neighbor. And I might be with you, but I, I, I might have some quarrel with what you're going to say. Who is my neighbor? And we do the same thing. Jesus replied with a story, verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bills run higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now you go and do the same. We talk about a neighbor's love. The man gets it. He's on board with that. But then he wants to know who is his neighbor because he's not really sure he wants to spread the love around that far. And now we're finding out just what a neighbor is like. I put it under the heading of a neighbor's help. Now just to remind us again, the significance of this story may be lost to us because we don't, really don't understand the acrimony that existed between Jewish people and the Samaritans. And that is rooted in history, it's rooted in um, theology, it's rooted in worship. This surfaces in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman and they're quibbling over where worship should take place. Let's go back about 700 years. 
prior to this. So the northern kingdom of Israel split away from the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was first out of the gate with their idol worship. I mean, they, 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 their judgment came earlier than the two uh, tribes down in the southern kingdom of Judah. Judgment upon them was the uh, Assyrians. They came, they conquered them. And they were very shrewd in how they dealt with conquered people. They would take some Jews from uh, Israel and they would plant them among some other conquered peoples, maybe in Parthia or um, some other place. And the shrewdness was in this. The strategy was in mixing up the conquered people so that they wouldn't be able to get their heads together with other people, like-minded neighbors who had the same cultural background, who had the same language, who had the same ethnicity, uh, who had the same religion. They couldn't get together and plot to overthrow Assyria because what would happen? Well, these Jewish children would grow up next to Parthian children and they would play together and then they would get older and they would marry. And now you're diluting the pure ethnicity, you're diluting the pure religion, you're diluting the pure cultural um, commonalities. The neighbors didn't have these same commonalities. And so they weren't as big of a threat to Assyria. But meanwhile, down south, the Jewish, the pure Jewish people are watching what's taking place in the north and elsewhere, the Jews. And they realize these people are no longer pure Jews. They, their blood has been diminished. It's, they're now half-breeds. And even before this happened, they were, they were going their own way religiously. They were supposed to, by God's law, to worship in Jerusalem. But once they broke away from the other tribes where Jerusalem was, now they set up their own place to worship. And they were changing other things about the Jewish law. And so the Jews down south... They just didn't have the same kind of regard for the Samaritans. That's who these new crossbred Jews were called, Samaritans, up in the northern kingdom. And so by Jesus' day, there was an incredible amount of awesome animosity and tension between the two groups. And so if you're a Jew walking down the street and there's a Samaritan coming uh, toward you, 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 you go to the opposite sides of the street so you don't have to pass each other. The Samaritan woman was blown away by Jesus in John 4 that he was even talking to her. True, because he was a man and she was a woman, but especially because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. Why in the world, then, would a Samaritan man do for a Jewish man what two other Jewish men refused to do? A priest comes along. There's a Jewish man in the gutter. The priest is a, the upper crust spiritual leader among the Jewish people, and he refuses to help the man. We don't know why. And if we want to put it in Protestant context today, we might say he was a, he was a pastor. He walked, walked on by. And then a Levite came along. And we might say, well, that's, that's an elder, church elder today, and he walked on by. He's a man in the ditch. He's unconscious. He's, he needs help. And yet the spiritual leaders of the day, unwilling to help him. So then a Samaritan comes along. And it says 
in verse 3, a despised Samaritan. Jesus was driving this point home. A despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for the man. A man's life's at stake. And so he's willing to do what the others aren't willing to do. He interrupts his schedule. He tends to his wounds. He transports him to safety. He cares for him overnight. He pays for his medical care with the hotel manager. And then he promises to return and provide any additional funds that are needed. Now, when you look at Jesus and his ministry, he was regularly helping neighbors and it didn't all look the same. Sometimes his help was in the form of healing. Sometimes it was in the form of forgiveness. Sometimes he was teaching. Sometimes he was confronting. Sometimes he was comforting. Sometimes he was rebuking. But all of this was the love of Jesus, his love in action. This was how he was helping neighbors. But the number one way in which he gave his love out was to point all to the Father and to himself. As he would heal people, he would point them back to the Father. Go and show yourself to the high priest. As he would teach them, he would point them back to the Father. As he would comfort them, as he would rebuke them, he would point them back to the Father and increasingly as his earthly ministry unfolded he would be pointing them to himself and so he says in John 12 32 when I am lifted up from the earth when I am hung on a cross I will draw everyone to myself and that's instructive for us who are trying to live out a love for a neighbor lifestyle if Jesus was continually pointing people to his father, and then to himself. What does that teach us? What does that say to us about our apologetics, our evangelism to our neighbors, to unbelievers that God brings us in contact uh, contact with? Because I suspect that as we have been listening to sermons and reading books and perhaps going online at websites, and by the way, just, uh, just a note, I'm going to be putting on, uh, on Keystone's Facebook uh, a list of resources, books recommended. Uh, there's a small group curriculum on there, a couple of them, uh, websites to look at, and so forth, uh, for you to do further reading, further research, and I uh, hope you'll take advantage of them. The, obviously, the uh, resources are not an exhaustive list, but I hope that we'll, they will be of some benefit to you some of the resources we have here in the church library. But again, I think as we have been thinking about how do I, def- how do I defend to someone uh, the um, resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do I try to help convince someone that the gospel accounts that we have are trustworthy, that they were uh, transmitted down over a lot of years uh, faithfully, accurately? How- how do I do that? I'm, I'm guessing that some of us think this is just not my, this is not something I'm going to do. I don't like to, ha- I don't like to have conflict. I don't like to have arguments. I, I don't know how to go about these kinds of things. 
So let me ask you this question. I'm going to describe three people. And you tell me which is a true neighbor. So the first kind is, I, I, I'm going to give it uh, an, a label that you might take offense with, but it's someone who refuses to do apologetics and evangelism. Refuse to engage an unbeliever. I'm going to describe them as obstinate. A second person would be someone, a Christian who is arrogant. They're the kind of person who has all the answers. They, they have got this apologetics thing down well. And so they love to mix it up with unbelievers. But the problem is that their um, objective is to win. Not necessarily to win the person to Jesus Christ. They're, they're good with that. But they feel like it's a win if they've won the debate. There's an old Indian proverb that says, you don't cut off a man's nose and then give him a rose to smell. In other words, you're trying to set people up to be welcoming to the gospel. And so kind of putting them down, crushing them, defeating them, it can only be described as arrogant. That certainly wasn't Jesus' approach to people. Again, I'm asking, which, which of these do you think is a fair description of a neighbor? The obstinate person, the arrogant person, or the last, the loving person? That is a Christian who is gently but forcefully sharing the things they're learning and asking the kinds of questions of unbelievers' beliefs that will begin to help us know where to go with this person. Which of these peop uh, peop kind of people is a, a, a neighbor? An obstinate Christian? I'm not going to talk with him. An arrogant Christian? I'm going to drive it home and win the debate. Or a loving Christian who's going to have the kind of conversation that doesn't worry at the end about whether or not this person comes to Christ. That's God's business. My job is to simply be a faithful witness. Which of you, which of these would you say is a neighbor? Again, we're, we're listening to this man ask uh, Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? What's his, what's his intention? To get off the hook of responsibility. And so I would ask the question of us, is that what we're, we try to do as believers, to get off, off the hook of responsibility? The gospel, if we really believe that the gospel is good news, that Jesus Christ came, uh, came died, and was buried and raised to life again for us and for the world, then don't we have this calling on our lives? We might not be doing it every day, every month, maybe, maybe only once a year, once in five years, but are we open to the Spirit guiding us to people that need to hear the hope that Jesus Christ offers? Let me just wrap up with a couple of, of points of what I think love means. If we are to love our neighbor in this area of sharing the good news with them. It means, one, that we are willing to ask them questions. Remember the second week I talked about how important it is to ask questions even more than giving answers because in asking questions we learn what kinds of answers they need. Sometimes people will just dump all they know on someone and they're answering questions that the other person doesn't even have because they haven't listened well. So willing to ask questions and that we're willing to listen to the other person. Third, we're willing to look foolish. And isn't that the call of Christ on all of our lives as believers? 1 Corinthians 1.21, he has used our foolish 
preaching to save those who believe. So we're willing to ask questions. We're willing to listen. Third, we're willing to look foolish. Fourth, we're willing to suffer. Let's be honest and say most times, I'll say this about me, most times when I neglect to talk to somebody about the gospel, when there's a clear opening there, or whether I'm, uh, when I'm reluctant to get into an apologetics conversation with them, most time I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to lose a debate. I don't want to feel foolish. I don't want to suffer. 2 Timothy 1.8 so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. And don't forget, we are recipients of the gospel because Jesus was willing to suffer on our, on our behalf. And then last, this is kind of a practical matter, but willing to actually care for a person. Willing to actually care for a person. What I mean by that is don't turn them into your project. This is a person that God loves, is made in his image, and he, uh, he has put you in a position that is near them. He's put me in a position where we're in close proximity, and we have an opportunity to speak on behalf of the Lord. Don't actually care, actually love them. We don't want to turn them into a project. And the way you can tell whether making them, you have made them a project or not is when they turn your Jesus down and you drop them a, like a hot potato. That's when you'll know and that's when they'll know that they've just been nothing more than a project. Just to kind of recap what we said the first Sunday, apologetics helps people in need who really don't know they're in need. In other words, they're, they're blind to the gospel that they need. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see uh, the, glory of, uh, the gospel, the glory of Christ. They, they can't see there needs to be a spiritual breakthrough. And part of the way God may use us in their lives is to poke holes in their fences that are keeping them from faith. They have a fence that exists between them and faith. And we want to try to poke some holes in, the, in that fence with apologetics, some apologetics answers. And then um, with apologetics and evangelism, try to build some gates where we've created those holes so that they can be open and people can pass through into faith. As we close in prayer, I'd like you, uh, if you're listening to this as a family or uh, friends or boyfriend and girlfriend, whatever, I, I, or maybe you're just alone, I would like you to think of someone that you are in close proximity to that you know doesn't know Christ. And maybe you, even as we've talked today, you've thought about times when you've, you've missed golden opportunities to start a conversation with them uh, about faith, faith matters. And I want you to pray for two people as we pray uh, silently at first and then I'll close. One, that you would pray for that person, that they would, the spirit of Christ would open up uh, their blinded eyes and then pray for yourself. That you would just be obedient to whatever God leads you to do in the weeks and months and years ahead. Let's pray now.
Father, don't let me be obstinate. Don't let me be arrogant. Make me a follower of Jesus who loves my neighbor. And not just a feeling, but that choice to love. A call to love. And the Spirit's ability to love. And in these days ahead, I pray that you would prompt me to be obedient every time. That you lead me to this person. And you lead me to have a conversation. And if and when I fumble the ball, don't let it just slide. Just bring me back to that place and remind me that you have left me here to be an ambassador and to be a neighbor who loves his neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray as we say goodbye for this morning that you'd go out of your homes into your week remembering that you are called to be this neighbor to lots of neighbors around you for the glory of God and for the saving of many lives. Go with God.